amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hey, everybody. This is Paula Schleiss. This is Steve Yoder. And we're Ohio Mysteries. Before we get started, we wanted to give a big shout-out to some of our recent financial supporters. Mary Beth from Brexville became our most recent Patreon supporter. Thank you, Mary Beth. Thank you very much. Absolutely. We also have PayPal supporters, Tim from Copley and Lisa from Twinsburg. Thank you very much. It's very easy. All you have to do is go to paypal.com and, uh, you know, send a donation our way at feedback at ohiomysteries.com. And Patreon works that easy, too. You just go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. You could become a a supporter for as little as a dollar a month. And that would mean a lot. That's fantastic. It It would mean a lot. We do have fees associated with this that that we pull out of our own pocket. We love doing it. Uh, No complaints here. But if you do want to support us, those are two ways you could do it. Absolutely. Thanks again, everyone. I appreciate it. On with the show. Welcome to Ohio Mysteries. The music you're listening to is Trouble by Lisa Bialis. Lisa is from Oxford, Ohio, and she's our featured musical artist this week. Last year, her album, The Beat of My Heart, made it well into the 2018 Grammy nomination process. So stick around to the end of the podcast, and we'll play the full version of Trouble for you and tell you more about this talented blues singer. Now, usually at this point, I set the mood by having you throw a new log on the proverbial campfire. But tonight, Paula said she wants us to pretend we're sitting on the beach, toes in the sand, sipping Mai Tais. Well, who am I to argue with that? I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder. And with me is our researcher and storyteller, award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Okay, Paula. It's the middle of winter in Ohio, so I don't mind dreaming up some tropical island scene, but something tells me you've got a good reason for this. So what's up? Well, Steve, in the movies, isn't that what thieves do after they get away with a bank heist big enough to set them up for life? A bank heist? All right. That's just the movies, though. In real life, bank robbers get caught. Well, today they do. But 50 years ago, we didn't have cameras watching our every move. And back then, it proved possible for a 20-year-old Cleveland bank teller to simply walk away with today's equivalent of nearly $1.5 million in a plain brown bag. And, true to stereotype, authorities believe Ted Conrad 
did indeed end up on a Pacific island with his ill-gotten gains. Nice. I also want you to keep in mind that our sticky-fingered culprit would only be about 70 years old today, so there's every reason to think he's still alive and kicking. At the beach. Or surfing, as it be the case. Yeah, the surfing. (laughs) (laughs) That's why, as recently as two years ago, the U.S. Marshal's Office was still listing him on press releases of fugitives they were seeking. Oh, nice. So, first, let me tell you a little bit about Ted Conrad. He was born Theodore John Conrad in Denver, Colorado. But he wasn't there long. His dad was in the Navy. And as any military family will tell you, that means moving a lot. So Conrad spent the better part of his childhood divided among several states. Then Conrad's parents divorced. And Conrad's mom remarried and ended up in Lakewood, Ohio, where Ted and his sister moved in with them. And they put down some roots on Bonneview Avenue. Okay, that's a nice uh, middle-class neighborhood. Yeah, Yeah, and and he did pretty well there. At Lakewood High School, Conrad, he was pretty well-liked. He was remembered as a quiet, under-the-radar kind of guy, but articulate and respected, enough so that his peers elected him to Lakewood High Student Council. Nice. And teachers liked him, too. He was an outstanding student, a real brainy fellow. He had an IQ of 135. That's very high. Yeah, an IQ scale, that's... That's uh, that's Edmund Kemper territory. That's approaching genius, Mm. yeah. Uh, Edmund Kemper, everybody knows. uh, You know Edmund Kemper, right? You love tossing in the serial (laughs) killer references. So, yeah, there are no serial killers in here, but okay. okay. Points to you for finding a way to work a serial killer reference into a bank high Very high IQ, though. Very high IQ. (laughs) Very high Anyway, his classmates would remember him as goal-oriented, the kind of guy who would be expected to accomplish things. Though, fair bet the career he chose for himself was not what they would have predicted. So when Conrad wasn't at school, he was often at work. Uh, He worked first at a restaurant, then at a drugstore, and in 1967, he graduated. Now, apparently, he tried to reconnect with his dad. So he enrolled at a small liberal arts school in New Hampshire, called New England College. His dad was a retired Navy captain by that time, and he was teaching political science at the same school. But for some reason, that situation only lasted a semester. By winter, he was back in Lakewood, and he was enrolled in evening classes at Cuyahoga Community College. Dipping his toes in the sand of uh, Lake Erie beaches? Of Lake Erie beaches, okay. yeah. No Lake Erie had the North, the North Coast. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that summer, okay, so we're going to go to June 19, 1968, and the Thomas Crown Affair hits theaters. Have you ever seen the movie? No. The Thomas Crown Affair. It's been a while for me, but it stars Steve McQueen at a time when every man wanted to be Steve McQueen. Yeah, I've heard of Steve McQueen. And uh, The Fade, Great Escape. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Faye Dunaway was the, uh, the, the female foil to his character. Okay. In this movie, McQueen is a bored millionaire who decides to orchestrate a bank robbery just to see if he can get away with it. Well, Ted Conrad becomes obsessed with this film. He watches it over and over and over, friends would later say. He also seems to adopt this persona of McQueen's character, Thomas Crown, who, by the way, he shares the same initials with, Ted Conrad, Thomas oh, Crown. okay, so he right. sees himself in him, obviously. That's right. You know, he can get linens and stuff with TC on it and still, you know, be right. playing the role of Thomas Crown. Anyway, he, Ted Conrad, he speaks French fluently, and all of a sudden he's speaking French all the time to his friends to, to impress them. 
Um, he was really skilled at billiards. His friend said he was like tournament quality skill. Wow. And he was really playing that up in the pool halls. He bought himself a British sports car called an MG. I had to look it up. It's a cool little sports car. He smoked Marlboros and he drank expensive gin. So he was really into this role. And then he sort of completes his, uh, his journey. In the beginning of 1969, he lands a job at a bank. Okay. Now, the managers at Society National Bank's headquarters on Public Square in Cleveland, they were very impressed with the affable Todd, Ted Conrad. Yeah. Go ahead and say it again. They liked his National Honor Society credentials. He came with excellent references, and he lived up to every expectation. In his seven months at the bank, his supervisors gave him well above average performance reviews, and he soon earned his way into a job working in the bank's cash vault. Oh. Go ahead. Ask me what they do in the cash vault. What do they do in well, the cash vault? I wasn't finished. Cash, oh, okay. What do they do in the cash vault? In the cash vault, they package the cash oh. for delivery to bank branches all over town. Do you saran wrap or anything? I they probably used the little, I don't know. I don't know, maybe. Yeah. Was saran wrap invented in 1969? Yeah, I'm sure. Maybe. His bosses said he was on the fast track. Deputy U.S. Marshal Pete Elliott would later tell reporters. Pete Elliott, wow. Pete okay. Elliott, he would later tell reporters, he guessed Conrad had big plans from the day he walked into the bank, and it had nothing to do with climbing the corporate ladder. As a matter of fact, in hindsight, he wasn't completely hiding it. Co-workers remembered how he used to joke about the bank being vulnerable, and he would tell them, I could do this, and nobody would know till it was over. Wow. But you'd think that would be sort of a red flag working in right. a bank, sort of like yelling fire in a movie theater. Yeah, I don't think you could do this, say that today. In the... <laughs> he, just, he just needed the perfect day, and it came, of all days, on his 20th birthday. This on is, his 20th birthday. He's going to give himself a hell of a birthday present here. Right. So it's Friday, July 11, 1969. Conrad's supervisor was having surgery. So for most of the day... Conrad was alone. There were no intrusive eyes in that bank vault with him. And at lunch, Conrad steps out for lunch, and when he returns, he's carrying a paper bag. And inside the bag is a fifth of Canadian club whiskey and a carton of smokes. Hey, it's, it's his birthday weekend. Right, he's going to party. So he makes sure everyone sees this bag. He makes it very conspicuous. And so nobody thinks anything as he walks this bag right into the vault to finish out his shift. This must have been a big bag. It must have been because it's he's going to go back out with that whiskey and the smokes and a little something extra. Nice. So at quitting time, Conrad, he smiles, bids his workers goodbye. No one thinks twice about the paper bag he's carrying in his hand. And since it was a Friday... Conrad was going to have a huge head start right. on whatever he had planned. So that evening, Catch at, me if you can. at about 7.30 p.m., Conrad steps outside his apartment on Clifton Boulevard. His landlady noticed him, so he smiled and waved, and then he stepped into his cab. A half hour later, he was at Cleveland Hopkins International Airport. Now, while there, he placed a single phone call to his girlfriend, Kathleen Einhouse and told her he was headed to Erie, Pennsylvania for a rock concert. Of course, on Monday, Conrad did not show up for work. And that wasn't like him at all. He had been a prompt and model employee. Phone calls to his home went unanswered. 
but it didn't take long for bank officials to understand why. They soon discovered their vault was short $215,000. $215,000. Accounting for inflation, that's the equivalent of just under $1.5 million in 2018. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's some good money right so there. So back then, you could get a lot of money stuffed into a little bag, and it would mean a lot more. It'd probably be hard to stuff $1.5 million into a bag today. Yeah, I guarantee they're not going to let you bring a bag. You know. Or even be able to do that. Right. So, Yeah. That, that brown bag he had carried out of the bank without so much as raising an eyebrow, it had been filled with 50s and $100 bills. Okay. So, now on July 17, six days after the heist, Conrad's girlfriend gets a letter from him, and it's postmarked from National Airport in Washington, D.C. And five days after that, she gets another letter from him, this time from the Los Angeles International Airport. Now, I don't have the contents of the letters. I haven't been able to find out what they said, but or authorities said... In both letters, he implicated himself. So I get the impression he was bragging a little bit. Yeah. Conrad, though, was clearly on his way out of the country. Well, the mainland, anyway. Three months after the robbery. So we're talking about October of 1969. An Ohio couple vacationing in Hawaii find their way into a bar at the Princess Kawilani Hotel. I'm going to take a guess at that. that princess Kawilani Hotel. That sounds good. And she was a good princess. Waikiki on the beautiful island of Oahu. Mm-hmm. And there they find themselves chatting with a delightful young man. Oh, I'm from Ohio. Exactly. Well, he doesn't say that. Okay. But at some point in the conversation, they mentioned being from Cleveland. And at this point, their new friend excuses himself to go to the restroom and never comes back. Yeah, because he's probably <laughs> thinking these are undercover... FBI or... Could be. Yeah. Well, he probably also knows his... By this time, his face is plastered in every state. Every FBI agent in every state is on the lookout for him. Okay. And so he's got good reason not to want his face connected to the word Cleveland in any way. So they, you know, they thought it was odd their buddy didn't come back, but they didn't think much of it until they got home and then recognized his picture on the news reports. So, of course, they called authorities, they shared everything that they had figured out in their conversation with him, including that the man had told them he was living in an apartment near the zoo in Oahu. So authorities, they turned to media outlets in Hawaii for help. And Deputy Marshal David Seiler, in an interview with reporters in Hawaii, said, We were able to track him from Cleveland to Washington Reagan National Airport to Los Angeles, and the last stop we know of was in your great state of Hawaii. And we believe there is somebody on that island that either knows him, knows of him, or had a brief stint relationship with him. So this stuff is appearing in the newspapers all over Hawaii. We have no idea what he did at that point, but I guess if I was in Hawaii, I'd maybe head a little further south in the Pacific. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, in December of 1969, the federal grand jury, they've got enough on, on this guy. They've indicted him for embezzlement, and that stopped the clock on the statute of limitations. So if Which Conrad, means that he can, anytime he can be. Yeah, okay. yeah. If he were caught and convicted today, he would face up to 20 years in prison. That's so, it. Well... Uh, he didn't kill anybody. That's true. Stole a bunch of money. Yeah, but, but this is America. We and also everybody. he's well. That's true. Also, <laughs> he's uh, seventy. At his age, right yeah, now, that's a life that sentence. would be a life sentence. Yeah. 
Anyway, the manhunt for Conrad was wide and deep. The U.S. Marshal's Office and the FBI both claimed jurisdiction, so they were both pursuing their own investigations, filling dozens of binders full of interviews and documents. And they took his fingerprints and his dossier, and they turned it over to Interpol, which is the global police agency. There were leads uh, followed as far as Melbourne, Australia. And back home, telephone records of Conrad's friends and family were combed for years to no avail. The only additional clue they ever gleamed was in a communication with a friend late in 1969 when Conrad revealed he'd undergone a drastic change in appearance. Probably not long after that couple, you know. Right. Probably a little worried about how close close of a call that was. Anyway, while while the trail grew cold, the investigation never ended. The FBI routinely staked out Lakewood High School's Class of 67 reunions. Oh, wow. Yeah, just in case Conrad couldn't resist showing up. I mean, if you're going to a class reunion, you've got the perfect answer to that. Hey, what have you been doing lately? <laughs> oh, I just uh, embezzled a bunch of money and <laughs> took off to Hawaii. Living on a South Pacific island? Right. But, you know, he he didn't show up, (laughs) not to anybody's surprise. Family members claimed Conrad had never contacted them once after he fled Cleveland. That's kind of rare. And they insisted he was dead, but there was no evidence of that, and clearly investigators never believed that. In retirement, Deputy Marshal Elliott told a Cleveland Plain Dealer reporter that he never stopped looking for Conrad. To quote him, One of the reasons I stayed after this guy is that some people thought he was some kind of hero or Robin Hood. He's not. He was nothing but a thief, a young, smart-ass thief who managed to elude law enforcement for all these years. Hopefully, we can bring him to justice soon. That interview was 10 years ago, and it hasn't happened yet. Well, that's all I got for you, Steve. You know, when you uh, talk about him, it seems like, uh, you know, when he was younger... It's almost like um, he was trying to build his own character, you know, and he took it off this movie. Maybe that has something to do with the way he grew up, the way he was raised, you know, always moving around, trying to get the attention of his father, you know. And It could be. You know, I, I would imagine that somebody who's moved all over the country might find it easier to just pick up and leave because he really didn't have any roots anywhere. Right. And if he wasn't that close to his family, if, they, if it was a... I mean, obviously, a lot of divorced families work, and you know from your own situation, can be very close mm-hmm. and work out co-parenting. Absolutely. It doesn't sound like maybe his family was like that, so maybe he wasn't feeling particularly close to anybody in his family. So yeah. I would think you would have to have that distance, both from location and relationships, to be able to just pick up for 50 years and go away and right. not miss anybody. Uh, I, I just, it's just... It just boggles me he didn't contact his family or his family might have been lying about it. But I think they would have tapped their phones and stuff. They could have. Well they were they said they were combing their telephone records. So I don't know if they're back then, I mean, yeah. I don't think you could right. trick where your phone call was coming from back then. I mean, if you were calling from some island, it was gonna show up, you know. Huh. They didn't have the technology to change how that looked. So. It'd be fun to interview him today, you know, was it worth it, you know? Maybe Ted, if you're out there yeah. and this gets to you, is it worth it? Give us a call. <laughs> our, our email address is on the website. That's right. <laughs> we'd love to know what you're up to. We'd love for you to be a Patreon supporter. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'd love for you to be a Patreon supporter. We could use a few more of those. Well, that's it for tonight, campers. 
If you like our podcast, please spread the word. We are on Facebook and Twitter, and we'd be so grateful if you would follow, share, or retweet us to your friends and family. Also, if you're listening to us on a podcast app, make sure that you hit the subscribe button. It's the best way to make sure that every new episode is saved in your library, so don't miss a single mystery. And that brings us to tonight's featured musical artist, Lisa Bialis. Lisa is a blues singer out of Oxford, Ohio. You can find her on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or search for her YouTube channel. She's got lots of videos out there. Better yet, just head on over to her website, lisabialis.com. Let me spell that for you. It's L-I-S-A-B-I-A-L-E-S.com. If you like bluesy, big band style music, go see Lisa in person. On February 28th, she'll be at the Dark County Center for the Arts as part of their Coffee House series. That's in Greenville. Check out her website or call 937-316-5000 for tickets. Geography check, Steve. Do you know where Dark County is? That's dark with an E on the end of it, uh, by Actually, the way. it's pronounced Dark K. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I you have know no what? idea. If you're Ted Conrad speaking French, yes. that's Dark I'm K. I'm from Dark K. Dark K. Okay. <laughs> All right. Where is it? I have no idea. Ah, uh, it's right on the Indiana border, due west from Columbus. Oh, okay. Well, you can find Lisa B. Alice and all of our featured musical artists on our webpage. There's a link at the top of the page at ohiomysteries.com. Tonight's song, Trouble, was written by E.G. Kite and sung by Lisa on her album, Bell of the Blues. Here it is in its entirety. Enjoy. And we'll see you back here next week for another Ohio Mystery.
a news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.